Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology lessons. In our last lesson, we began a new section on the doctrine of creation. Now, I realize my introduction was a little bit different than what you're probably used to when discussing creation. Instead of just diving right into Genesis, we took a discussion that happens much later on in systematic theology, and we brought it forward to bring out the implications that that discussion has for creation. That is, what major decrees of God should we consider, how should we de define them, and how should we order them? And this became a big deal, especially in the time of the Reformation, because men could not agree as to what God's plan was regarding the earth. And if you didn't hear that lesson, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the background that I gave in that, because some of what I'm going to say today may not make sense unless you have some of that background. But I took that route to highlight and help correct a major problem I see with many professing Christians today, and that is this downplaying of creation in God's eternal plan of redemption. You see this attack on creation in its worst forms in hyperpreterism. But even among evangelicals, you hear things like, well, you know, God is going to wipe this planet out and be done with it forever. And that's the last we'll hear of it. Some will look at you weird when you suggest that dying and going to heaven as a disembodied soul is not the final goal of our existence. Uh, when my family and I visited a church in St. Pete we, for about a year, I was still a hyper-preterist at the time, but this church would be considered by many a very good, solid evangelical church. Well, in that church, there was a couple leading a, a midweek Bible study, and we got into a little discussion about resurrection one night. Come to find out, they denied the resurrection of the body. They said, well, you get your new body when you die, go to heaven. It has nothing to do with this flesh. And what's funny is I, I agreed with them, but I'm like, you're not supposed to believe that. <laughs> I'm sitting there arguing with them. Like, that's not what you're supposed to hold to. You're Christians, Orthodox Christians. Why are you rejecting this view? So here I am, to, you know, pointing out their heresy, even though I agreed with their heresy. It was just really, really weird. But below, this is very prevalent today. And perhaps it's become more so due to some of the overreaction we see out in the world, the radical environmentalists and others. Naturally, we're turned off by those who want to take creation and make it the major thing and the only thing, as if that's all that exists. But we have to be careful not to overreact and end up in the other ditch, the other extreme, and minimize the importance of creation. And so as Christians, we should be concerned about our planet. We should care about how animals are treated. We should be environmentalists, true environmentalists. Our planet is not going anywhere. It's going to go through some radical changes in the future, but it's here to stay, and we have been called by God to be faithful stewards over it, to exercise care and dominion as God has directed us to do in his word. And that includes what we do with our bodies as well. None of God's act of creation was a mistake. It's not just some disjointed little side hobby of the creators. It's not, it wasn't part of some plan that God started and then ditched it and said, well, let's go on to something else. It plays a necessary role in God's plan of redemption. And that has been the case since day one or even better since eternity. That's what I wanted to highlight 
in our last lesson. And so to get us there, theologically, we considered the infralapsarian versus supralapsarian question. And we showed how the modified supralapsarian position demonstrates the logical necessity and purposeful intention behind God's work of creation. Now, this lesson is basically going to recap that lesson. There's going to be some repetition. It's sort of an extension of that intro. And again, I'm doing this because I truly believe that where we land on this issue is going to affect where we end up down the road. A lot of minimizing of creation happens because we minimize it in the beginning. We don't understand its purpose, its point. So just to review, we saw that in the infralapsarian view, the main decrees are ordered as follows. There's God's decree to create the world and all of man. There's God's decree then that men would fall into sin. Then there's God's decree to elect some fallen men in Christ and reprobate others. Then there's God's decree to elect or to redeem the elect by the work of Christ on the cross. And then there's God's decree to apply the redemptive benefits to the elect by the Spirit. And if you look how those decrees are ordered, they're basically ordered as they would happen historically, in time and space, chronologically. So, for example, the first decree to create the world and of men was the first thing we see in the Bible. In the beginning, God created, and so on. Well, the original superlapsarian view held basically to the same order. They moved, but they made one exception. They took the decree of election, which was at the third position, and moved it to the top. And they did that to emphasize the governing principle of election, to give all the other decrees their purpose in working out election. Well, I think that view moves us in the right direction, but as Raymond pointed out in his systematic theology, the original superview still suffers from some of the same problems that the infralapsarian view does by leaving the other four decrees in the same order. So in order to demonstrate a logical, necessary relationship from one decree to the next, the modified view flipped them upside down. Now think about how you would go about planning something one day. Let's say, for example, and Raymond gives the example of buying a car. As you think and plan about how to make that happen, you begin to create a list of steps. The end game, the goal, is to buy a car. But how do you make that happen? Well, you know that you first got to get out of bed. Then you have to leave home either with your current vehicle or maybe get a ride from Trevor. Then you arrive at the dealership. And then once you get to the dealership, you talk to the salesman, you agree on a sales price, and then lastly, you arrange a loan through the bank to purchase the car. Now, there's a lot more other steps you could throw in there, but that's we're sticking to five, five big ones. Notice that every step in this plan is a necessary part of the plan, and it's done in a certain order. You can't arrange a loan with a bank if you haven't discussed a purchase price yet with the salesman. You can't discuss a purchase price with a salesman if you haven't gone to the dealership. And you, haven't, you can't get to the dealership unless you get your rear end out of bed and wake up. Every step is necessary. Every step leads you closer to the goal. But also notice this, as you think through your plan and you determine what steps are necessary, 
you are ordering the steps in your mind in the reverse order that you would actually carry them out in time and space. So Raymond writes, how does the rational mind go about determining the means that are necessary to reach a determined end? Because it recognizes that each means in any purposive chain of means, except for the last one, which is viewed from the point of determined end, of necessity is the end of the means that follows it, and because it is necessary always to pass from the end to the means to the end. The rational mind will not begin from the point where it finds itself and determine first from that point the last means to the end. Rather, the rational mind, and in the case of men, we may do this without even realizing it, will begin from the determined end and in a retrograde movement work back in its planning to the point where it finds itself at the moment. Only in this way does each means answer purposely to the need of the former means, end quote. So again, to go back to our car buyer illustration, the car buyer has determined that he will purchase a car. That's his ultimate end. But in order to do that, given his present circumstances, he determines as the first means to this ultimate end that he must uh, arrange a loan with the bank. But in order to do that, he determines as the second means to his ultimate end that he must agree with the car salesman as to a purchase price. But then in order to do that, he determines as the third means to his ultimate end that he must get to the car dealership. But in order to do that, he determines as the fourth means to his end that he must leave home. And in order to do that, he determines as the fifth means to his ultimate end that he must get out of bed that morning. So in purposive planning, each element of the plan necessarily in, uh, answers the need of the preceding element so that there is a purpose in each member in uh, purposive coherence governing the whole plan. This is actually the way we think our rational minds work as we purpose and plan things. And that's why the modified superlapsarian view was offered. If you look at the infralapsarian view, the steps are ordered in the way that they would take place in time and space historically. But in doing so, they don't demonstrate any logical necessity between the decrees. In other words, it would be like you getting out of bed one day randomly, and then you decide to give Trevor a call and say, hey, take me to the car dealership. And Trevor says, well, why are we going there? And you're like, I don't know. Let's just go. I don't really have a purpose or reason for it. Just do it. Well, in the Emperor view, the first step is that God creates the world. Okay. But we're not explained why. It just happens. And then God decrees that man fall into sin. Well, why is that happening? Is there some relationship between that decree and the one that preceded it? What's the purpose? What's the point? It's not explained in that order. It doesn't appear that the creation of man necessitated the fall of man. There's no logical connection. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. And the original superlapsarian view suffers from the same problem. By moving the decree of election to the top, it does emphasize the governing principle of election but it doesn't do so with logical consistency. And so the modified view orders the decrees in the way in which we would logically order them in our mind as we plan things out in the reverse order. But then when it comes time to actually put the plan into action, we carry out the steps in reverse order, as we said. 
And so with the first decree, the election of man, we see that in order to make that happen, you have to apply redemption to the elect. Hence the second decree. But in order to have a redemption to apply, Christ has to work out this salvation by his work of the cross. Hence the third decree. But if Christ is going to save sinners, you have to have a fall of man into sin. Hence the decree of the fall. But in order to have men falling, you have to have men to start with. Hence the fifth decree and last, which is the decree to create the world of men. And so you see the necessary logical connection from one decree to the next. But then comes time for God to put the plan in action in time and space. And so what's the first thing we read in our Bibles? Reverse the order. In the beginning, there's your time indicator. Right? This, he's not talking about a logical beginning. He's talking about an historical one, time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Go back to our order of decrees in the modified form. Why is God doing this? What's the point? What's the purpose? Because he is now in time and space executing his eternal plan. This is the beginning stage of its execution. The one single divine eternal plan. Not two plans. Not plan A, plan B. The one single divine plan. And so the implication of this then is that the work of creation is not random. It's not arbitrary. It's not just some curious little side thing that God's doing that he's eventually going to reject and, and, and forsake. It is done with intention and purpose to bring about the end goal. Everything about it is exact and intentional. The amount of time that he did it in, the way that he created man, body, and soul, not just the soul. I mean, think about it. Let's go back to this couple in St. Pete that I, that I mentioned in denying the resurrection of bodies. If the men that are mentioned in the first decree, which is the election of some simple men to salvation, are not of the same nature, body and soul, as they are defined in the decree of creation, then what was the point in creating men as body and soul to begin with? Why do it? It would seem to me that creating men in the exact way that God did, body and soul, was done in order to bring about the goal of having men glorify him in body and soul. But if the redeemed men of the first decree end up being just disembodied souls, which is what resurrection deniers would have us believe, then why did God give us bodies to start with? What's the point? Is he just being arbitrary? Surely not. If God desired disembodied souls to glorify him as part of the end game, just make us disembodied souls to begin with. And yet that's not what we see in Genesis. God created man's soul and body so that man's soul and body would glorify him. And of course, we see this very language later on in Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Flee sexual immorality. Why? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Beloved, it matters what you do with your body. The material creation is not arbitrary. It's not without purpose. All of these elements in creation are intentional and necessary, and they're going to come back up in the story of redemption as we read that story in our Bibles from beginning to end to bring us to that end goal, the end game. But now that brings me to the second major point I wanted to highlight. And this was a point that I kind of sort of talked about, but I didn't really, I, I want to bring it out a little bit further in this lesson. And I still probably won't develop it full enough, but at least there's enough here to get you thinking about. And the issue is this, does the super view go far enough? Remember that in the super view, the decree of election was moved to the top of the list to make it the governing decree that explains all the other decrees. It gives the other decrees their purpose. But what this does, at least in my mind, is make the election of men the main central thing. Now, I don't think that was intentional on their part, the superlapsarians, but you can't help but see it when you look at the order. In both the original and modified superviews, what is the first decree that God elects to save some men to salvation in Christ? But that raises some questions in my mind. First, is election the overarching governing principle in God's eternal plan? Now, there's no question that it has an essential part in the plan, a necessary part. But is it the governing principle? I don't think that it is. If you recall, we established when, uh, what the governing principle is in the decree of God back in our previous series. When I asked, I think it was the last lesson, I asked the question, what is the end game and everything that God's doing? We did this big old long survey from Genesis to Revelation. And the answer was not election. The answer was, broadly speaking, the glorification of God. But specifically speaking, we said it was this, that God's chief end in everything that he's doing is to glorify himself, that he lift up and magnify himself, that he put on display the full range of his perfections, his holiness, his power, his wisdom, his justice, his wrath, his goodness, his truth, and his grace. That, I would argue, is the governing principle non-election. Election is not an end of itself. It's a means to an end. And the means for which it serves is to glorify God and to help put on display his holiness, power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, and grace. Election is just one component of many components to bring about that purpose. But if you make election the main thing, you are essentially making man the center of it all. In making election the end-all, be-all. And how can that be? Election is not even salvation. If you think about it, we are elected to salvation. Is, is election a necessary step in salvation? Absolutely, but it doesn't end in election. That would be like you and I going to the polls this November to elect a man just for the sake of electing him. Well, you don't just go to choose someone, you elect men to something, to an office, to a function. 
when Donald Trump won the election, he didn't say, hey, we won, threw a big party and said, well, let's go home, we're done. No, he was elected into something, into office. The election was a means to something. Another way to highlight this issue with the superview is to look at it this way. If the first decree is to elect some simple men to salvation in Christ, and we stay within that train of thought in the modified view that we talked about, where we, we ask ourselves, how is each decree logically necessitated? Then the question becomes, well, what necessitates the election of men to salvation? And if they are elected in Christ, who or what is Christ? It wouldn't necessitated him. Well, the superview, even in its modified form, doesn't really answer those questions. Again, is God electing people just for the sake of electing them? And if he is electing them in Christ, then that would suggest that men are elected indirectly, not directly. And that Christ, not man, is the central figure in all of this. But if that is so, to what purpose? Again, what's the end game? Again, the first decree, as it's stated in the superview, doesn't really spell that out. So there's something that needs to account for why, number one, men are elected in the first place, and two, what necessitated the Christ, quote unquote. If you don't account for this, then I'm afraid you'll, number one, make election the main thing when it's not, make men the main thing, and two, you will have this Christ figure there with no explanation as to why he's there or what he is or what his purpose is. And so I believe what accounts for these things and thus should be made the first or top decree and thus the governing principle is God's desire to be glorified in his holiness, power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, and grace via a work of salvation or economy of salvation that he establishes by a covenant among the members of the Trinity in which the Father chooses to save some and not save others. The Son takes on a reasonable soul and body um, to subject himself to the law, to perfect obedience, to uh, subject himself to the wrath of God, so that he can die as a sub substitutionary atonement for the elect, and then rise from the dead to ascend in heaven at the Father's right hand and exercise all authority over heaven and earth as prophet, priest, and king. And then the Spirit applies the benefits of that salvation to the elect at the appointed time. This is that economy of salvation, that covenant of redemption. Now there are many other functions for which uh, each member we can talk about that they, they do in this work. This is just a summary. But if this is the governing principle in the decrees, then we can see how God, not man, is made central to the whole scheme. His glorification is, is centered, made central, not election. Again, election is not an end of itself. It is the means to an end. Men are elected to, to salvation for what purpose? That God be glorified in his holiness, power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, and grace. And they are elected in who? The Christ. Well, who is he? He's the second person of the triune Godhead who covenanted with the Father and with the Spirit to work out this plan in order that God be glorified in his holiness, power, wisdom, justice, wrath, goodness, truth, and grace. Again, I read these verses, but let me read some of them again. Ephesians 3. Notice in, as I'm reading these verses, ask yourself, what's the purpose? What's God doing? And how is he 
and to what end? Ephesians 3, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, there's your purpose clause, through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 5 of that same chapter, Paul writes, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Two, here's the purpose, the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And in Romans 9, Paul says, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Do you see the pattern here in all these scriptures? Election is but one of the many means by which God is displaying the full range of his perfections in order to be glorified. God is making himself known. He's revealing his wrath. He's revealing his goodness. He's revealing his mercy, his power, his grace. And that not only is the governing principle in an order decrees, and thus should be made decree number one, in my opinion, but by implication becomes the governing principle in the work of creation. Which is all to say that creation does not simply exist to give you something to analyze under a microscope just for kicks. The work of creation is the execution of God's eternal plan, his decree. The work of creation is the last of the decrees in the logical sequence, as we talked about, but it's the first to be executed in time and space to bring about God's plan of redemption, centered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In order that God be glorified in his holiness, his power, wisdom, justice, goodness, wrath, truth, and grace. He's not doing this work of creation despite salvation or in opposition to it. It's part of the plan. It's a very core, essential part of it. Chapter 5, paragraph 1 of our Confession of Faith says, It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for, there's your purpose, the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. You see the purpose, what it says there? For the manifestation of his glory. 
to display his attributes, his power, his wisdom, his goodness. Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul writes, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not you made preeminent, not me, not my election, that he may be made preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Quote. Do you see that, beloved? The second person of the Trinity takes on our nature, our body, our soul, the incarnate word, the incarnate Christ. And then he does this work of atonement by shedding his blood on the cross. He dies a real physical death. And then he has victory over this death in a real physical resurrection and ascension. This is how God is merging heaven with earth in order to put on display the full range of his perfections. The incarnate word and his work of atonement, which could not be possible apart from the second person taking on our nature, are the central theme to this whole scheme, the whole plan. And that, I'm arguing to you today, is the point of creation. That's its purpose. That is where Genesis 1 and 2 are heading. It is essential to the plan. It's not a mistake. Creation is not arbitrary. It's not just some fun little hobby that God's doing on the side that he's eventually going to disregard. Creation matters, beloved. All things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, are united and subjected to Christ for the glorification of God in all of his perfections. And I hope and pray that that be your perspective on creation, on matter, on the stuff of this earth, so that we don't minimize it and disregard it. Hey, right on time. My clock is quick ticking. 